0: you tried music to code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks Joe! And, you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of Music to Code By for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin.
1: And this is Richard Campbell.
0: I'm recording from home today,
1: my friend. It's a rainy day. Nice. We tend to do these geek-out recordings on a, on the weekend, either a Saturday or a Sunday, and you know, a little more laid-back, a little more casual. Exactly. Which is good. I think it puts us in a good mood for contemplating some of the complexities we're going to dig into. Yeah. I can't wait. And and folks may have noticed, in fact, people have been complaining that I I took a few months off of Geek Outs. Yeah. And everybody's like, what happened, man? What happened, man? Are you okay? It was just a frantic summer. I mean, there's no choice, but I, you know this because we, we talk all the time. But yeah. We got a lot of our summer shows shot in June, and I just was at a point where there was so much travel, so much going on that it was very hard to get that in there. And I'm... For the first time in my life, or arguably in a very, very long time, I'm pressing against the limits of my ability to do all of the research and all of the, you know, between Humanitarian Toolbox and Dev Intersection and the the podcast and the history of .NET, which is, you know, taking a bigger and bigger chunk of time up as I do more of the research to put that book together. It's Mm. getting very challenging to put it all on.
0: It's almost like having a real job. It's almost
1: like having a job. And, we, and plus, we've dropped down to two shows a week now. Yeah. And I was fine when it was three shows a week that one a month was a geek out. Right. But at two shows a week, it's like 12% of our shows is geek out. It's, mm. it's, it's a little tougher to take. So I am now actively working on a geek out website to make a standalone show. Yep. I don't know that I'm going to be able to light it up uh, before I finish History of .NET. Yeah. Which is going to you know, go, History of .Net I want to have in, in, you know, be the top geeky Christmas present for Christmas 2018. Yeah. So, but then that means I need to be done by summer of next year. So I don't know that we can stand up the new Geek Out site before then, but that's sort of where I'm projecting. Well, that'd and, be uh, awesome. I appreciate everyone's patience. Um, it's, uh, I hate to say this is an easy geek out. But we all follow SpaceX so closely. Yeah, the latest set of announcements are important, and they represent. You know, the the trick with SpaceX is looking at what they didn't say, yeah. as well as
0: what they did say. Well, I can't wait to get into it. But first, we have this little matter of a bit we call Better Know a framework. Yes, sir. <laughs> all right buddy what do you got well this being .net rock show 1486 if you go to 1486.pwop.me you'll find a set of gaming headphones and i know this is weird but because you're not a gamer i'm not a gamer but i am a podcaster and i do deal with people who aren't audio people or aren't technical and need to interview them uh on podcasts and Interesting. Lately, a lot. Um, And this is for for Two Keto Dudes, right? Yeah, Two Keto Dudes is sort of blossoming into this organization uh, called Two Keto that is producing more podcasts every week. Neat. And so one of them is called the Obesity Code Podcast, obesitycodepodcast.com. Another one is with Mark Miller and Karen Mangicotti uh, called Keto Families and Keto Kids. There's two there. And another one with Daisy Brackenhall called Keto Woman. Uh, Keto Woman podcast. And so I'm. Uh, they're dealing with guests, and I'm dealing with guests all the time who don't know anything about recording. And so I needed a solution that was drop-dead easy, and this is it. And I tested four or five different headsets. The whole idea here is that it's USB, it plugs in, and the microphone and headphones become the default audio system, the default right. audio device. Like, there's no preamps, there's no... Mic stands. There's no wind screens, and so the sound quality had to be really good, and they also had to be closed headphones so that the sound wouldn't leak out. And, right. So you, you don't get crosstalk. Yeah, and you'd be surprised at how crappy some of the sound is on these, uh, on these things, especially you know fifty bucks or less. Yeah, and he, and this is an inexpensive pair of headphones, but yeah, I, I would expect that some of them are quite poor. Yes, yeah, some of them are, and I even got one not reading the fine print. That had it said it was USB. And then I noticed that it also had a microphone cable and a and a headphone jack. <laughs> I'm like, what? Well, what's the USB for? You know what it's for? The blinky lights. Oh my goodness. It was just power. Just the power the stupid lights. That is funny. Yeah. Well, those got returned. Yeah. What do you anyway, think? Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Nubwo N U B W O K5 gaming headset. Uh, It works with the PC, the Mac, PS4, anything that has a USB port and does audio. And it sounds really good. And I have no problem uh, at $34 because I've got Amazon Prime just sending a pair uh, all over the U.S. and from this person to that person to that person to this person or, you know. Uh, So if you're going to be a podcast guest and you want a drop-dead easy microphone setup, that you can just use with Audacity, which is free. Check that one out. Personally nice. sanctified by me. <laughs> yeah. You checked it the old-fashioned way. You tested it. I tested it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. So, who's talking to us today, Richard?
1: Uh grabbed a comment off of show 1115. That's the space-based power geek out. Right which I, I was going fairly bar, far back in the catalog. And There's lots of different comments, and uh, I always have great discussions around these shows. And I, I tend to write long responses to folks at times. This is all the way back from March of 2015. And the comment is not actually about space-based power either. This is from Paul Schrum, who's been a listener to the show for a oh, long yeah. time. absolutely. We know him. We've gotten a few emails and things from him, but I don't think he's ever gotten a mug. And he, uh, here's how long ago it was. He starts off the comment by saying, I can't figure out how to get into Google Moderator. Oh, wow. Which has been gone for a while. It used to be the way that I built the list of what show to make next. But uh, I found this comment fascinating, even though it's three years old, just because it, it sort of touches on so many things that have evolved a lot. And so, and, I mean, it's a bit unfair because it is three years later, but it's just, a, I think Paul was thinking really well yeah. about what was hard and what was easy and what was coming. Mm. And so, his comment goes, uh, I am thinking your audience is interested in intriguing, emerging and almost their technologies in our present reality. I totally agree, Paul. That's mm. exactly what folks are excited about. It's what I'm excited about as well. Yeah. And so, uh, there are a few things you mentioned around artificial intelligence, like artificial consciousness or sentience. Or do we go into the new expert systems that could all be on the list? Not an expert in AI, but there's, you know, many areas to explore here. And, and again, how prescient is that? That yep. three years later, when it's, it's all around us. Yeah. And the a- the AI show we did a couple of years ago is just nowhere near what's actually going on. Right. So he digs into these particular elements that, I, I again, I, I made notes on from this comment back then that these were good ideas. Uh, Such as SLAM system. SLAM is an acronym for simultaneous localization and mapping, a.k.a. the key technology necessary for autonomous driving. Okay. Right? And really that's about how do you take 3D imagery, so stuff from a LiDAR, that little rotating dome, that builds up that 3D representation, and then deal with it. Right. Figure out how to work with it. And what's fascinating now is, the sensor in question here that uh, lidar those used to be tens of thousands of dollars they're now down to hundreds of dollars wow so for and and even then because of the increase in ai technology machine learning and so forth we almost don't need them that optic multi-optical systems are doing great 3d renderings without having range finding like that yeah right uh Next up, neural networks. are they? What are they really? And it's funny that neural networks, are a very much an 80s technology, yep. are right back. We call it deep learning today. Right. But they're essentially the same tech. It's just that everything's faster. The learning models are smarter. There's so much more data available because of where the
0: internet has gone that that technology is sort of back. And neural nets, if I'm not uh, mistaken, are really good at finding patterns that humans just would not be able to find. And doing inference relationships. You know, one of the early neural net techs that I worked
1: with was a bottling plant where they were looking in for flaws in bottles. Hmm. And so, no two f- bottles are flawed the same way. How could this thing possibly find that? It says right.
0: strange inference that neural nets really show up their, their capabilities. And you don't necessarily answer the question, why does this happen? But right. you do answer the question, when will it happen again? Uh, and when you see it again right they, yeah.
1: they, those variations are very tolerant and it's one of the challenges around neural networks today is that it's so non deterministic it's so right. difficult to know why it decided the thing it decided mm. that there's a strong case for strict limits on on the the importance of neural networks or where they you know where they they can't really make life or death decisions because when they make it wrong you simply won't be able to answer the question why did it make that wrong yeah yeah. So very challenging. Um, uh, Paul goes on to mention robotics. Uh, when can I be Anakin Skywalker and build my own rob- robot from spare parts lying around? Yeah, that's the, one of the. Don't watch episode one. Come on, man. It's not <laughs> worth it. Man, just don't do it. It's so bad. <laughs> and, and he mentioned stuff like Duino and, and and so forth. Yeah. You know, the best place that I see today for sort of smart robotics are the autonomous flying systems. So more build your own drone. Yeah. Of so much of the complexity of flying has been absorbed in these standardized chipsets now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, I, you know, I point at stuff like the DJI Spark is just a different level of drone where it, it uh, handles its own hovering. You let go of the controls, it stops flying and just stays where it is. Like so much smarts now. And all those things are available as parts. So you can build them the way you want to build them. Wow. Uh, natural language processing, and he references your old DNR TV on speak recognition with the Kinect. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny how that's evolved too. You know, we were stuck at sort of the 90% accuracy range for a long time with NLP, and then suddenly jumped up into the 98, 99%. And it was because literally it was a redesign around cloud based
0: compute. Remember when you had to train voice systems? I do. Yeah. And, you know, you still do if you want, if you want them to really be tweaky, but some of them are really, really advanced. Like they when they don't f- when they don't understand something, they go to the internet. Yeah. You know. Well,
1: you're you're right. But when you and when you think about nobody trains Siri anymore, nobody trains Cortana anymore, nobody trains Alexa anymore. Right. And it's that's the new model that's so much smarter. And and I don't you know, it's a geek out to talk about how this has changed, this yeah. sort of transformation,
0: which is certainly interesting for me. Yeah. Well, we talked about that on the show before. When you have uh, a service in the cloud like that, you're in. You're providing the service. You only have to tweak one uh, speech recognition module. You know, you only have to tweak one algorithm, and you train it and you constantly train it. So, though if you're using it last year, it's this year that much better because it has learned so much. Yeah, I wonder if we just said we simply hit the good enough phase now. That
1: yeah. Stop thinking about it. This is no longer exotic. It just kind of works. Mm. And I think the the introduction of Alexa and the spread of Alexa, which clearly is the dominant tech in this space right yeah. now, sort of shows that we've crossed the line on this. Uh, and Paul finished off by saying all of these are interrelated in various ways. Yeah, there's a lot of AI behind everything going on there, even though I hate the term. it's That's yeah. the blanket term these days. Yep. Uh, those of us recall our reactions when the first Apple II came out. Many mm. of us wanted to hear more about how cool this stuff is going to get. That we might get on board and do some of it ourselves. Yep, you know, Paul can't argue with you. It may take me three years to uh, to read your comment, but I wanted. I said three years ago. I made notes on some of your thoughts here because they are potential shows. And as I go forward, starting to think about what the geekouts will look like, standing on their own as part instead of part of Darknet rocks uh, things are going to have to be different, and uh, mm. I don't know what the outcome will be. I'll be willing to experiment. You guys will have to come along with the ride and tell me what you like and what you don't like. Definitely. But uh, these are topics that are absolutely worth talking about. Yeah. And so, Paul, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we've published every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show,
0: we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We let our dogs play with them. <laughs> you don't have a dog. <laughs> hey, come on. Why let the truth get in the way of a good story? I love that line. Yeah. And by the way, how I got there is because I was going to do something about drones. And I just know that people who have drones and dogs have a particularly good set of things to play with. <laughs>
1: although the two don't get along very well (laughs) i just wanted
0: to let you know how my thinking went there at lightning speed that is the science of funny my friends there you go (laughs) i guess so let's do that let's get into spacex and all of the new things that have been announced and have been achieved quite frankly it's pretty amazing to me that a rocket can fly into space and land vertically in the middle of the ocean, right, and be reused, and has been reused. You know, and has been. It's been a year. You
1: know, last October's show was about the SpaceX interplanetary transport system. So, and again, it was the same thing. And that this particular conference that Elon goes to every year, he tends to make these big announcements. And so, uh, in a year, he's done a ton. I mean, he flew. Yeah. He's flown so many Falconites. He's landed them reliably. He's landed them. And, you know, for me as a as a geeky space guy, what do I watch for? Hmm. He was able to land uh, polar orbit. Yeah. So flying out of Vandenberg where they actually take off going south because they're going to do a polar orbit. He was able to land the uh, first stage on the ship there. Hmm. He's able to land. Uh, the, the COTS mission, the CRS going resupplying the space station. That's an easy one. It's a funny inclination, but it's lower power, lower altitude, very precise flight. Yeah. Those are the ones you see. They tend to fly them back and land them back on land. He's also been able to land geostationary orbit, uh, launches, which are much higher energy because they have to go substantially
0: higher boost. And so tougher to return those are the ones that tend to return on ships. Geostationary orbit means that it's in sync with the Earth, so with the rotation of the earth so twenty two thousand three hundred miles up or thirty six thousand kilometers up and you if you were to look up and see a satellite or anything in space that was in geosynchronous orbit, it wouldn't appear to move right yeah, it would move well, yeah. It's, and they're, they're
1: really hard to see because A, they're a long way away, even though they're relatively big satellites as satellites going, yeah, they, they just don't whiz by like the space station does. Right. Or any of the low earth satellites, like the Iridium cluster. If there's people who like watching for those, they're relatively small satellites, but there's 36 of them. So they're yeah. always buzzing around and you can, uh, yeah, see a flash from them on a good dark night. Right. So it, you know, the, those types of missions, that array of missions speaks volumes to how well he's got things wired in with the Falcon 9. In yeah. some ways, I think the Falcon 9 is pretty much as developed as going to get. And one of the questions I had a number of years ago, back at the beginning of doing Geek Outs was, what would he do different on the rocket if he knew it was recoverable?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and just to just to get back to the recoverable thing that he's done it, the space shuttle was supposed to be reusable, recoverable and reusable, but did they ever reuse one? Well, absolutely. They flew the shuttles multiple times. The problem
1: was that, uh, and, and the main thing they wanted to recover were those engines. Yeah. And it's in, You know, I, I was reading more about the SSME, the space shuttle engine, the other day. You know, they only built 42 of those. Hmm. Those engines, they used it it in clusters of three. All of those engines were repeatedly reused. And arguably the shuttle is the size and shape it was to get those engines back. That was the really expensive bit as well as the spacecraft itself. But the engines were were super important. And they still have most of them. Hmm. They're going to fly them on the SLS. It
0: took them a long time to re-prepare them, though, for...
1: Yes. It, yeah. it, the fastest they ever turned around a shuttle, which was like an emergency sprint, was like 90 days. Yeah. Normally, you would lucky to fly a given shuttle more than once a year. And and the reason was that the tile system needed a ton of maintenance, yeah. and as the spacecraft started to age, inspecting because there were so many failure modes that were not survivable—ways mm. that the ship could break that would kill the astronauts and lose the vehicle. Yeah. Inspections were hugely extensive, and so it was it was tens of thousands of hours yeah. of inspection, refurbishment, and repairs for every flight, and that's
0: really what broke the back of shuttle. They were trying to do too much. Yeah, but Elon's not putting people on a Falcon 9, so he doesn't have – he's not under that kind of pressure, is he?
1: Well, he hasn't yet. You know, the the next Dragon, the Dragon crew, is supposed to be flying people to the space station. The Falcon 9 full thrust is in the power ranging capability to absolutely bring astronauts to the space station. Wow. Uh, and he's ready to test that. In fact – in the in the past year, there's been a bunch of changes around exactly that issue, uh, and I, I'll I'll talk about him in a sec. I, I want to talk a little bit about more about Falcon Nine because he did announce a couple of changes he wants to make to Falcon Nine. Okay, uh, you know, one of the few things that I could see clear evidence that he modified now that he knows he's going to recover the the and reuse the actual first stage is those paddles, the little uh, fins that sort of pop out. Yeah, at the top of the rocket to help guide it in. Yeah. The original ones were made of aluminum. And on on a few occasions, you could see them all but melting at times when they were coming in at higher speeds. They've been replaced with titanium ones. Wow. Titanium is lighter than aluminum, but not by much, much more heat tolerant, but, and, but substantially more expensive. Yeah. And so it makes sense once you know you're going to reuse, uh, a rocket to say, I'm going to put the more expensive but more long lasting part on. So it's that's sure. one of the examples. Yeah. But the craziest announcement about the Falcon 9 that came out in this last wave in September is that he's going to take off the legs. What? So you know those fold out <laughs> legs that for for the landing? Don't they help him land? Yeah. Why? Yes, they do. <laughs> <But> <laughs> why take them off? He's now in a place where he feels they're so precise on their landing. They know exactly where they can put the ship down that they want to land the Falcon 9's back on their pegs. So there are four structural pegs at the bottom of the ship that are what the rocket sits on when it's on the pad. Okay. And then when it takes, you know, because the legs are folded up when they take off, right? Right. And so those little pegs, and they're only a few inches across. Oh, wow sit on posts that allow it, keep the rocket stable so that it can be moved to the pad and they lift off directly from that. So he's now in a place where he says, we're so precise in our flying
0: that we think we can put it back down on the pegs. So that's kind of like if you have patio furniture and you've got a table with a hole in the middle that your umbrella goes into. Right. That's the kind of precision he's talking about, isn't it? That is it? exactly the kind of precision
1: he's talking about. But remember, you're you're taking a patio umbrella with one post this That's is a 25 four. story tall building with four posts so you had to get the rotation and alignment exactly right cuz you miss it all it's going to tip
0: over and what if there's wind <laughs> i just yeah. don't see how this is going to work i can't even put my patio umbrella in if it's no. windy how is he yeah, going to exactly. do
1: that i don't i don't know and it's i and i don't know that he's actually going to do it i mean one of the things now that we've spent time with elon you know it's been a few years He says some crazy stuff and then often he, he has to dial it back. And I feel like he was running out of things to say about Falcon 9 that so much works so well on Falcon 9 that he just, this is the only thing he's got left. And admittedly, if he takes the legs off, he, that's weight that gets to go into payload. So it'll, you know, in a lot of ways, the Falcon 9 full thrust has been tweaked to the limits of that design and there's not much further to go on it. Yeah. And so, uh,
0: this is the only thing he's got left to
1: really improve on.
0: Yeah, I suppose you're right. I mean, as crazy as he is, I mean, it's the dreaming and the thinking big and then scaling back that gets him to the best reality he possibly can get, I suppose. And you said it so well, my friend. In fact, if there's anything that comes from this
1: particular geek out, it's that statement. What we get this year over last year is a more detailed analysis and a reimagining of
0: proposals from the previous year. Yeah
1: closer to reality right
0: yeah well uh, hold that thought right there Mr. Campbell while we take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at JetBrains hey how often do you profile memory usage in your .NET apps what if you could automate memory usage checks so that they're executed every time you commit a change you can actually do that with .memory Unit from JetBrains Memory unit is a free unit testing framework for monitoring.NET memory usage. You write unit tests that check your code for all kinds of memory issues, and then run the tests on your machine or in a continuous integration server like Team City or VSTS, just like you do with regular unit tests. You can track how much memory is allocated, check memory for objects of a specific type to prevent memory leaks, or compare several memory snapshots in a unit test to see if memory usage is creeping up. Learn more and download .memory Unit from jetbrains.netrocks.com or just search for a package called .memory Unit on the NuGet gallery. And we're back. Carl Franklin Richard Campbell were geeking out uh, about SpaceX. Richard and I were just talking about Elon and how his thinking big and dreaming uh, is necessary to allow his people to get to the best reality they possibly can that's closest to his dream. And he seems to get more and more honest about what he's doing. He often talks about this is an
1: aspirational goal or yeah. an aspirational date. Yeah. Boy, it must be fun to have his job. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, but he balances a lot of a lot of balls at the yeah. same time, right? It's very challenging. Yeah. Uh, something we talked about last year and have talked about before was with that new version two of the dragon, the crew one the there's a great video and i'll include it in the links about the the, the v2 when it re-enters the atmosphere it's going to land on land they actually have uh engines super dracos they call them yeah okay on that um and what was clever about his design was not only were they for retro propulsion for landing they were also the escape system and he's tested this yeah so that should something go wrong with the rocket you're able to pull the crew off the end of the rocket and fly them to safety. Wow! And so, where we're with the SLS and the Saturn V before it, there was an additional rocket engine sort of stuck on the top of the capsule that was a pull-off system. But you know, normally you wouldn't use it for anything. It's it's only in emergencies. Although later versions of the Saturn V, they actually used it for a little bit additional thrust before they threw it away. Here was this design that said, here are these engines, and we're going to use them every time. Either we use them on the emergency during ascent to escape, or we use them for landing. And if you watch this video, it's like a two-minute video. It shows right at the end, it doing a landing on a pad with little pop-out legs. Hmm. And there's a couple of problems with that. And this has sort of come to a head now that they've actually abandoned this design and this intent almost entirely. The first problem is those pop-out legs come out through the heat shield. Oh. And so that creates a weak spot in the heat shield. Now, I'm not saying it's insurmountable. I'm saying these were issues that NASA brought up as they're going to need a lot of testing to be able to prove that this is safe. And the same goes with the Super Draco engines. Those are hypergolic engines. Hypergolic? Yes, hypergolic engines, great term. Okay. Normally we use, so hypergolics speak to their fuel, right? These This this is uh, nitrogen tetraoxide. So rather than using cryogenic fuels or anything like that, these are the fuels that as soon as they touch each other, they burn violently. And they're wow. super toxic. So if you remember, they, they're usually, hypergolics are usually used for RCS, for the maneuvering system to be able to point the spacecraft the way you want to. Okay. And because they're so toxic, whenever you saw a shuttle land, the, the astronauts couldn't get out right away. First, a vehicle would come up and guys in bunny suits would carefully vacuum <laughs> off any traces of those hypergolic fuels that might be stuck to the, to the ship because it's so poisonous. Wow. And so tanks of this stuff in a place where humans are makes NASA nervous. Yeah. Now it's not unprecedented. The lunar module, the, uh, part of the, the Saturn system, the Apollo system, the lunar, uh, lander that landed on the, on the moon and then took off again to, to, uh, take the astronauts back to the command module. That was all hypergolic fuel hmm. and single mode failure too. If They, if any, either of those engines didn't work, the astronauts weren't going to survive. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that, they were fairly keen to retire the lunar uh, lander and shut down the Apollo missions was that sooner or later, one of those things was going to fail and there were no recoverable modes for it. So and again, NASA is not saying you can't do it. NASA is saying the bar you need to get over to make those hypergolics reliable enough to be a manned system were high enough that Elon said, we're just not going to do it that way. It's not worth the pain. Yeah. And I, and I'm I want to. Point to each of these decisions because it leads to the new BFR. And BFR stands for the big friggin' rocket. <laughs>
0: Are you serious?
1: That's really the name. <laughs> you call it the Big Falcon Rocket if you want.
0: Okay, that's more but, sane. Yeah. But okay, Big
1: Frackin' Rocket. Yeah, no, that's really the name. They, they should probably come up with a better name. Frack that guy. But that name's pretty funny. That and is and enjoyable. Funny. But it's it says a lot about SpaceX and Elon, and you know, yeah. that's the name. I and like it. You know, they, they, for a long time when he was working, you know, he was going through the Falcons. He made a Falcon 1. He proposed a Falcon 5. It would have five engines. Then he went to the Falcon 9. It has nine engines. Yeah. And he always talked about Falcon Heavy, which we probably should talk about as well. Yep. And then there was this aspirational rocket he called the BFR. And last year, he called then called it the Interplanetary Transport System, right? But that was the code name for that was BFR. And BFR is back and different from ITS. Huh. We're going to spend a little bit of time with Falcon Heavy. Falcon Heavy okay. was uh, is supposed to be three Falcon 9s side by side. Right. We talked about this. Sure we have. And the original proposal on it was so simple. We're just going to strap three side by side. We're going to cross feed the fuel so that the outer tanks feed the center engines as well. Now you're going to have 27 engines instead of nine. Yep. And you're up, you're going to go. Then the outer boosters will empty first because they're feeding all these engines. And they'll peel away and go back and land to be refueled and reused. And the center stage will still be fully fueled. So you'll get this huge boost. So where Falcon 9 full thrust got to 22 metric tons, uh, to, to Leo, the uh, Falcon Heavy to do 54 metric tons, which just put it in a different class. Yeah, they right. They could get 13 metric tons all the way to Mars. Is that what they were building it for? With the idea in mind, it would go to Mars. It, it was 13 metric tons to Mars would be more mass lifted to Mars than has ever been lifted. You know, the largest thing to be sent to Mars was the Curiosity rover at one metric ton. Well, that's not true. It was one landed. It was five with all of its flight gear on it. and it put But it put a metric ton on the surface. Wow. And he was proposing 13 metric tons to the surface, which is extraordinary. Unprecedented. And probably not going to happen. Just okay. Again, as the technology continued to advance, they started to really build heavy, and they're building heavy. They will f- attempt to fly heavy. It may just not be as heavy as they originally wanted. Well, and this is the thing that happened, right? So the cross-feeding of fuel, that's been deleted. There's no – they'd love to do it at some point. There's no plan to do it. And it's, there's a good reason for that. It's really hard to do. It's unprecedented. Okay. You know, those turbo pumps on each one of those Merlin engines are spinning at an incredibly high speed. They need a very stable fuel flow. If you have a burp in the fuel flow, those things blow apart. Yeah. So the idea that you would change the flow from one tank to another while it's running – Just too dangerous. Wow. And nobody's done it. The Delta four heavy, which is the closest similar rocket to the Falcon nine heavy Uh being also three side by side tanks all with these RS 68 engines. They don't cr- even try to cross feed. The way they work is the center engine, they all take off at full power and the center engine throttles back to 60% after yeah. a certain amount of time. So that the outer is em- empty first and then the center still has enough fuel to fly a bit further, get wow. higher lift. And wow. Until the Falcons came along, that was the heaviest lift rocket the Americans had was the Delta IV heavy. Huh. So deleted the, the fuel crossover. A number of times he's now said, "Wow, this turns out to be harder than we thought." The center column has so much stress on it because the two outside uh, uh, rockets are pulling on it. They had to redesign big chunks of it, so it's the center is very different from the outboard uh, tanks. Okay. Uh, And then they finally he got the when he was asked about heavy again, he said, "You know." We're going to fly this thing, but we've hit a limit on what we're able to test on the ground, and we just don't know whether it will make it to orbit. I'm hoping, this is literally the quote from Elon, I'm hoping it doesn't damage the pad.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, guess what time it is, Richard? I must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to remove the umbrella of sanity from the patio table of conversation, allowing the inane winds of stupidity to blow over the furniture. That was awesome. I thought you might like that. I love everything. It wasn't that. funny, but it was awesome. <laughs>
1: but it was awesome. <laughs>
0: It's actually time to give away a experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today, and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com/superhero. Well all right buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner Richard is Wendy Turner. Ah, congratulations Wendy. Golf clap for you. Yeah. And Wendy just won the D experience subscription a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress. Just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, and if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a five thousand dollar technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But you got to sign up to win. So, Richard, didn't they already destroy a pad? Yes, it did, actually. The uh, SLC-40,
1: the second failure ever of a Falcon 9. So the first failure was the one, the the CRS-6 mission, where the second stage blew apart because of a helium leak right, uh, on the way up, and they would have recovered the Dragon if they'd written the software that said, hey, the ship's blowing up, pop the parachute, Uh, which apparently they've now written. So if that ever happens again or something like that happens again, you might even get Dragon back. Wow. Which is interesting. Uh, the second failure was an on-the-pad failure. Okay. Also, the helium system on the second stage erupting, and it burned the pad badly. Wow. Destroyed the transporter erector launcher system, and they've been repairing that pad ever since. Hmm. That pad was supposed to be for Falcon Heavy, but while it's being repaired, they've been modifying 39A to fly Falcon Heavy. And I suspect they delay Falcon Heavy until... 40 is working again, just yeah. in case they do have an explosion on the pad with Heavy that destroys 39A. And 39A, I mean, is the most historical pad of them all, right? Yeah. That's where Apollo 11 took off from. That's where the original space shuttle took off from. Yeah. Like, it's it's kind of an important pad. It would be bad to blow it up. Yeah. But I, my best guess for why they're so uncertain about what's going to happen with Heavy is that there's going to be an interaction, an acoustic interaction, between those 27 engines that pretty much can't be modeled. They they can't really figure it out in advance. And so it's entirely possible that the forces involved here could rip the rocket apart. Wow. Uh, You know, when the first shuttle went up, they had underestimated just how much force was involved. It, It tore up the pad. It blew down... Uh, fencing like it could damage a lot of things they then they eventually developed a water injection system yeah. that sprayed water all over the pad to help absorb some of those acoustic waves just huh. to break that down and that's a very normal thing for them to do now on all pads is to spray water all over the place to to manage those shock waves but as you get to bigger and bigger rockets and remember we're still not talking about the big rocket yet yeah right you just talk about <laughs> heavy I don't think we they've done enough to really work through what the acoustic signature of this rocket's gonna be. And I think part that's part of their concern is they just don't know if the forces involved, whether it's the pressure of the outboard engines pushing upward, the acoustic waves between the engines that are all in line, yeah, that may well rip that rocket apart. And <clears> and so Elon literally said they hope they're far enough away from the pad before anything dramatic happens yeah okay that makes sense you know alongside this situation the the main missions of heavy there's a few commercial missions that have been proposed that folks are interested in taking but the famous ones are the red dragon yeah that's sending a dragon to mars okay that's uh, indefinitely suspended between the no supersonic retro propulsion landing system with the legs and so forth not doing that and Falcon Heavy being delayed, they're not they're not planning on flying anything to Mars at this particular moment.
0: All they really have to do is tweak the Transfabulator down a few ads
1: <laughs> and they'd be fine.
0: What's the matter with those
1: people? The other mission we had last year, they were talking about last year, was a private pass around the Moon for a couple of wealthy people. Yeah, and that also depended on Heavy. Yeah. and the uh, the Dragon V two. So that's been postponed indefinitely as well. Okay. And I hope you're getting a sense. It's like nine has sort of gone as far as it can go. Heavy has serious problems. Yeah. And so now it makes sense to talk about the updated version of BFR. The BFR. Right. Because it's actually the replacement for ITS. And ITS. So that's the interplanetary transport system. That's what he talked about last year. And we immediately did a show on it literally right. a year ago Yep, when that was the enormous rocket, the crazy enormous rocket. That was the I mean, big
0: FFR. The,
1: yeah. It was that that rocket, 12 meters in diameter. So the Falcon 9 is 3.7 meters in diameter. Okay. Uh, Saturn V first stage was 10 meters in diameter. The proposed ITS, 12 meters. Wow. 36 feet. Just incredibly big. That's huge. Uh, but even after, not long after it proposed it, it's just sort of reality set in. Like starting with number one, it won't fit in your construction building. Like You're <laughs> not going to actually be able to build it that big. Details. Details. Yeah, it's just so large. And it was, of course, dependent on the Raptor engine. And in the past year, the Raptor engine has come a long way. But it's, again, interesting when I pull all the data together about the Raptor engine. So, this is the methane liquid oxygen engine. Right. And and while nobody has made a methane engine of orbital class, there's been small methane engines. It's very interesting that both SpaceX and Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, suddenly started on orbit class methane engines. You know, why hadn't they come before? And so, you know, little, we've talked about this before, but quick discussion on rocket fuels. So, the Falcon 9, uh, the Saturn V first stage were RP-1 or refined petroleum, jet fuel. Right. Uh, and liquid oxygen engines. Yeah. RP-1 is uh, liquid at room temperature. It's easy to handle. It's very dense for the amount of power it's got. So, you right. have smaller tanks. Uh, it's not as efficient. It doesn't burn quite as well, Um, but that's okay because it's dense. So your stage gets to be smaller. It's good stuff for first stages, and it's the only fuel that SpaceX has flown is RP-1 locks. Right. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you have hydrogen and oxygen, right? Liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. So this is what the space shuttle used with all of the complexities. Um, Liquid hydrogen is very uh, low density. So the tanks are eight times the size of an RP-1 tank. For the comparable amount of fuel. Very efficient. Like the most efficient engines you can get. But the tanks are so big, it makes it tough to use. Yeah. And they and liquid hydrogen is much more difficult to keep cold than liquid oxygen. Much, okay. much more. Right. Also, the hydrogen has nasty habits. It, it, it tends to bond to metal and it causes what's called hydrogen embrittlement. So it's super hard to handle. And so... Uh, Elon came up very early on saying
0: no liquid hydrogen. And and most people steer clear of it. It's a very tricky fuel to use. And that might Much also be a clue as to why the hydrogen economy never really took off. You know, remember the promise of that in the George Bush Absolutely. years? Yeah. Yep. And and
1: with fuel cells and so forth. And yeah, handling hydrogen is really hard and dangerous. Right. Fuel cells are expensive. I mean, yeah. we still make them. The, the shuttle depended on them
0: but you know they're rare and costly yeah it also costs more to make the to separate the hydrogen than it does to sell it yeah it's yeah. it's very tough
1: stuff so you know the, the inexpensive way to get hydrogen is to actually crack it from hydrocarbons which means you're basically extracting oil to make hydrogen for your hydrogen economy yeah like, woo wait a minute now <laughs> <laughs> So, the old Raptor the, the Raptor, the Raptor's been worked on since like 2012. In fact, at one point, it was just an upper stage engine that the Air Force wanted. Yeah. And then as they started talking about it in the context of a really big rocket, there were proposals for a million-pound thrust engine. At one point, even a 1.8 million-pound thrust engine. You know, the old F-1 from Saturn V was a 1.5 million-pound thrust engine, and the biggest engine ever made, like just in a league by itself so powerful. Most of the time when you talk about orbital class engines, you talk about 500 to 700,000 pounds of thrust. Mm. So just crazy, crazy, powerful engines they were talking about. But in 2016, last year's announcements, they dialed it back a bit. They said, we're going to use methane because methane strikes this nice balance. You can cool it with the same systems that you cool liquid oxygen. It's naturally gaseous, so it's self-pressurizing. You know, one of the challenges of RP1 is you need those helium tanks to pump helium into the fuel tank for the RP-1 to keep it pressurized. Yeah. And if you notice, the two times the Falcon 9 has been lost it was the darn helium tanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, getting rid of that helium is a feature. You don't need to do that with liquid oxygen because it's self-pressurizing. As you turn the, the liquid oxygen back into gaseous oxygen, you just feed it back into the tank to keep it pressurized. Methane mm. works the same way. Okay. Same kind of cooling as LOX, same kind of self-pressurization. It's more efficient than RP1, not as efficient as hydrogen. Its tanks are about twice the size of RP1, but a quarter the size of hydrogen. So, it just fits in the middle yeah. very nicely. Right. Couple of downsides to methane. One is it runs very hot. So you have to build a beefier engine, Mm. right? Which makes the engine more expensive. Now, if you have a single-use engine, that's not a feature. But if you have a multi-use engine, who cares? Right. Right? It's actually a feature that you have because it's very clean burning, right? RP1 also has coking problems. It leaves carbon soot and acids on the uh, the bells of the rocket engine. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna reuse them, that's kind of a problem. Mm. And methane is a simple compound to be made in other locations, for instance, on Mars.
0: Yeah, it's also storable and transportable. Yeah, it's a lot form. more,
1: It's if you can, you have to handle liquid oxygen anyway, all of your handling methodologies for liquid oxygen apply to methane. Yeah. So it makes total sense. So in 2016, the proposed engine uh, for the Raptor was a 690,000-pound thrust engine. That is powerful, but not extraordinary, about three mega newtons of thrust, and an ISP of 334, which is very efficient. Mm. The chamber pressure is going to be 300 bar, or about 4,400 PSI. That is, again, an extraordinary number, three times the chamber pressure of the Merlin 1D. Wow. And they were also going to do what's called a full-flow staged combustion engine. Again. Hmm. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, what is that? So you need a pump to pump your fuel into your engine in the right ratio at the fast enough to give you the thrust you want, right? Okay. There's a bunch of different ways to build a pump. The simplest pump is what they call a gas generator cycle pump. So, gas generator cycle pump is what they use in the Merlin 1D. They take a little bit of the RP1 and a little bit of oxygen, they burn it to spin the turbine and they pump the exhaust out of pipe overboard. And we showed videos of this one. Previous yep. times we talked about this. You saw it as this little black sooty plume that came off the side <laughs> right. of the engine as it was running. Right. Simple, reliable, not especially efficient because you actually have two different fuels you're trying to pump both the RP-1 and the liquid oxygen, and they don't pump exactly at the same rate. So if you have one pump for both, you have a bit of an efficiency problem. And so they talk about being a fuel-rich mixture or an oxygen-rich mixture, depending on the way you want to build your engine. Both have pluses and minuses, but you're trying to keep that pump light and simple as possible. The gas generator is the simplest way to go. Now, there is Flow combustion, where you actually take the byproducts that you burn there and pump them back into the the combustion chamber to burn. Now, they're already partially burned, so they're going to burn differently than the raw fuel. So, it's trickier to build, but it makes a more efficient engine. Sure. So, the RD-180, the engine that the Russians built that flies the Atlas V and has caused all this fuss because it's a Russian engine flying American military missions. Yeah has that kind of engine it's an oxygen rich stage combustion engine and it is without a doubt a more efficient engine because of that the concept of a full flow stage combustion engine has not really been built in meaningful numbers the russians had an engine called the rd 270 was along these lines nasa experimented with it because with a full flow stage combustion engine you actually have two pumps one for the oxidizer one for the fuel Mm -hmm. with two pre-burners so it's a bigger system but it is optimal efficiency. So you're maximizing the yield. What does a pre burner do? The pre burner is what actually superheats the fuel to turn it back into the gaseous form and as hot as
0: possible so that it burns as efficiently as possible in the chamber. I get it. It's, it's uh, like pre processing any other kind of manufacturing material. You want to get it to a state where once you put it in the chamber, it's going to, it's good to go. rapidly exactly yeah combust and the closest
1: the americans that got to an engine this complex was the space shuttle main engine where it had dual pre-burners but it had a combined pump system and it was very efficient it used liquid hydrogen which is tricky to work with right uh the engines were very expensive they they called them ferrari engines for a reason (laughs) you know they were they and that's why they wanted them back and they reused them successfully many times Um, They they actually improved the engine so that it had higher thrust in its original design. Like, there was a lot good about that engine. They now call it the RS-25A. And they're going to use them up on the SLS, supposedly. Hmm. The space launch system that NASA's using as disposable engines. Cool. For better or worse. So, that's in 2016. Back in 2016, they demonstrated a run of the full-flow combustion engine. Now, it turned out it was a one-third scale model of that engine. Hmm. Now, one-third is still a pretty sturdy engine. You're still talking 250,000 pounds of thrust, a mega newton of, of power. Yeah. But it did demonstrate the full flow system working, and it ran. Now, they just had to scale it up three times to meet their goals. Now, they didn't talk about this at all in the 2017 announcements but they did talk they talked about the raptor but they didn't mention the differences between what they talked in 2016 so in 2016 it was supposed to be 700 000 pounds of thrust three mega newtons they'd only tested a one mega newton, you know a 250,000 pound in 2017 the new engine though they're still calling raptor mm. is smaller Okay. Around. so their sea level engine is expected to be 1.7 mega newtons or roughly 400 000 pounds of thrust Hmm. Still efficient. And what's interesting about that is that means that their te- their scale engine, it was originally one third scale is more like 60%, huh. 70%. So they're actually pretty close to really building a Raptor engine. Wow. That's promising. It is. It's, it's more in realms with something that can actually be made that they actually have made. They've reduced the chamber pressure a bit, although they think they can get back up to the 300 bar. They're saying 250 bar. Um, for rocket, engine people, the most outrageous thing they're saying about the Raptor engine is 20 to 100% throttle ability. Okay, what does that mean? Normally, rocket engines work efficiently at full thrust, full bore, right? Oh. But this is a problem. You want to be able to throttle them down and it's really hard to throttle a rocket engine. And be efficient. Well, and not blow up actually. Yeah, okay. Because when you get to end these half million pound thrust engines, Burn stability is really tricky, and so when you cut back the fuel flow, you destabilize the burn, and it can cause chuffing or a bunch of other behaviors that can easily blow the engine apart. Wow! And it's one of the limitations of the the Merlin One D. We talked about this when they every time they land one of those first stages, they're doing what's called a suicide burn <laughs> because they cannot run the engine low enough to hover the first stage. At its minimum thrust, it will actually make the stage go up. So, they time the burn so that they're decelerating so that the point at which it touches the deck, it's not moving. It's um, that close. Okay. That's a suicide burn. All right. And so, supposedly, the Raptor, be being able to throttle all the way down to 20%, the 1D can't throttle below 50%, which is super normal. That's the way rocket engines usually work. Okay. They're saying they're going to be able to throttle down to 20% in a half-million-pound thrust engine. Unprecedented, hmm. but if they can, then it makes the landings a lot simpler.
0: And this is the engine that they're going to use in the BFR. That is correct, sir. The new BFR, the new BFR, the ITS engine. Had, so the ITS,
1: the one they talked about last year, the much bigger rocket, the twelve meter diameter rocket, was going to have forty-two of the twenty sixteen Raptors, the three meganewton ra- mm. Raptor engines, and forty-two was not an accident. Yeah, yeah, Just, right. It, Thank you, There's Douglas There's always Adams. good space references. <laughs> Everything that Elon does is funny <laughs> yeah. this way. So BFR 2.0, the 2017 edition of BFR, they've gone down to nine meters. Now, nine meters mm. is still enormous. It is. It's huge, but not as big as it was, not 12 meters. Um, and again, the, the Saturn V was a 10-meter 10, 10 first stage. The upper stages were smaller. Mm. The first stage was 10 meters. So not unprecedented. OK, uh, they're going to use 31 of the new Raptor engines. Wow. So that's a lot of engines. And, yeah. and again, a little on the unprecedented side. The only other vehicle with that kind of engine count was the Soviet's N1 Moon Rocket, which had 30 main stage engines and never made it to orbit. Hmm. Now, I've read a lot about the N1 is now that more information has been released about it, and it wasn't just the engine's fault. They did have engine problems, but they mostly had flight computer problems uh-huh. that made those problems worse. Hmm. You just got to think about the plumbing for yeah. 31 engines uh-huh. all around a nine-meter diameter circle. I wouldn't want to one write of that code. Yeah, it's a lot of pipes, right? Yeah. All of the... The, uh each one of those engines needs two pipes in, right? Fuel and oxidizer, right? along with the, to go to their pumps. Each one of them has a pump. It's a lot of engines. Yeah. And so it's going to be challenging to make all of that work. And
0: it is big. Uh, no no two ways about it. So what is the practical application of this if not to go to Mars? That's an excellent
1: question. And let's get into that. I got to describe the second stage first. Because okay. this is where we get, you know, Elon wants 100% reusability, right? Yeah. I mean, that's his goal. And where is he falling down? The first stages, they're reusable, no problem. The second stages, you lose them every time. They're too high, too fast to return. The amount of additional mass you'd need to be able to decelerate it and land it mm. makes it worthless. Okay. The, the dragons are reusable, although the trunks are not, right? They have now reflown a a, a Dragon V1 back to the space station, which is cool. hmm The design of the BFR has the second stage containing not only the tanks and propellant and a set of engines, six engines for the for the second stage. It's also the payload. No kidding. So this is a two piece rocket, right? A first stage that's going to boost you to a certain altitude and then fly back and land. And a second stage that finishes the orbit, does the reentry and also lands on its tail and also has possibly people in it. Exactly. Now, this second stage is also nine meters diameter. So, it is the biggest upper stage you've ever seen. Jeez. They expect to have 825 cubic meters of pressurized volume. The space station has 900 cubic meters of pressurized volume. A 747 (laughs) has about 800 cubic meters of pressurized volume. That's big. Like, it's just crazy big, right? If you talk about, like, the Dragon capsule right now that that transports stuff to the space station has 10 cubic meters. Right. Right? Takes about six metric tons to the space station and 10 cubic meters. The Cygnus, which is the other uh, resupply ship, is bigger. It actually carries less weight. can only take three and a half metric tons. Mm. But it has 27 Uh, cubic meters of of space in it, right? It's interesting that, you know, volume and mass, not the
0: same thing, right? So, it's not that we're going to use the BFR to go farther. We're going to use it to carry more in one trip to the space station. We we absolutely
1: could because it should be able to lift 150 metric tons to low Earth orbit. Now, um, as opposed to what the Dragon currently does, which is six. Yeah. I get So, it. this is kind of, I, I don't know what you do with 150 metric tons. Like, you've basically got about a third of the entire space station in capacity there. Yeah. Right? And volume-wise, you almost have the entire volume. But what's brilliant about this design is, again, we get back to the reusability problems. The other piece that he can't reuse right now on the Falcon 9 is the uh, the payload shroud, right? The two pieces that split apart, and, and he was going to try and land them with parachutes. Like, he wants to recover everything. Hmm. If you have a ship this large, you no longer have a payload shroud. You have a cargo hatch. Sure. So you just open up, release your payload, close up, fly back. This yeah. is a 100% reusable design if wow. it works as designed. And he's, and he's saying 150 metric tons to low Earth orbit, 50 metric tons landing. The space shuttle had a payload hatch, right? It did. It it had this payload bay doors in the back. That it wasn't pressurized volume, but it you could put pressurized volumes inside of it. And the individual pieces of the space station, many of them, came up that way. Right, right. And the advantage of that approach of bringing it up in the shuttle is that you didn't have to make flight tolerant space station devices they didn't need to have their own maneuvering systems they didn't have to tolerate the, uh the flight conditions they didn't get heated or anything like that they were inside the shuttle safe mm. the shuttle dealt with all of those forces and then they were docked in place they were pulled out and actually placed into where they they would connect uh, mm. on the space station mm. so you're essentially looking at a new ship that's capable of doing that wow that's amazing right. they, and what's fa- I mean, again it's so big it's it's so much larger. I mean, the space to shuttle was 36 meters long. This would be 48 meters long. Yeah. So it's enormous. But you don't have to run it full all the time. When it's 100% reusable, the only thing you're really using up is fuel and some maintenance. Right. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what what the fuel cost would be. Many <laughs> many years ago, Elon said, I did the math, and the cost of the fuel for a Falcon 9 is like 200 grand. Yeah. And yet the mission, you know, each one of these flights cost $60 million. Like, it's not
0: the fuel, it's the issue. Right. And interestingly enough, methane, dramatically cheaper than RP-1. Yeah. And, you know, if you strap a million buckets to the back ends and front ends of, of all the cows and steers in the world, why, you have an infinite supply of methane. Well, or, we have a lot of methane. Or my Methane's uncle Methane's not Bart, hard to come by.
1: <laughs> so... He absolutely could fly this to Mars. It's not as big as ITS. So ITS was supposed to fly a hundred people yeah. to to Mars, maybe even two hundred. This would be more like fifty or sixty. He actually talked about um, forty cabins in the design in that design hmm. that could have two or three people in them. So he, that could get to a hundred. Wow! Brings the new uh, meaning about- to the word pleasure cruise. Well, yeah, except for that radiation problem oh, yeah. and the details. damage to in free fall, all those little details, little problems. Uh, and he it, and it has an integrated landing system. So it's the, the design here is that it has a heat shield that that is durable, that allows it to deal with atmospheric reentry, but then it lands back on its tail again. Yeah. Hm. If you remember in the ITS show, we talked about the refueling system where they would come up side by side and dock to each other and transfer fuel. And I said, that's the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's going to be more complicated than that. Right. His new refueling system actually has a refueling ship the same size and shape as the BFR second stage going tail on, tail to tail. Now,
0: that's
1: And then they weird. accelerate the ship to actually move the fuel from one uh, machine to another. So, the to do a Mars launch then with this new BFR, you would fly up with your 40 cabins you have 150 metric tons so some of that's put to people some that's put to equipment you then fly four refueling ships to fully refuel that ship to be able to fly to mars and land Hmm. it then needs to refuel on the surface of mars so you better have a refueling system that works Hmm. and fly back but this is all way in the future in theory, it is, yeah. right? I mean, the, what's interesting about the BFR this time is he says, this is the rocket that's going to replace Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. Yep. He wants to use it for everything, which is how he's going to fund it, right? Yeah. The big problem with the ITS is there's just no way to fund the thing. Right. Right? Yeah. So, this is a way to fund it by making it the rocket. You want, you just want to lift a 20-ton a payload into low-earth orbit? Yeah, we can do that. Because we're 100% reusable, you're only paying for the fuel. So, I did the math on the fuel. Okay. And the math on the fuel comes out to about 7,000 tons of fuel. Uh, Roughly 5,500 metric tons is liquid oxygen and uh, 1,500 metric tons is the uh, methane. Okay. The cost of the fuel for a fully fueled craft then comes in somewhere in the neighborhood of about $1.3 million. When the cost of a launch is... Well, we haven't got a price for a launch in a BFR, but a Falcon 9 full thrust is $63 million. All right. So, it's really not that much relatively. No. And and again, Elon's describing it the same way you talk about airliners. Imagine if you flew an airliner to your destination with just enough fuel that it gets there and runs out of fuel and you have to jump out with a parachute. Yeah. And destroy the plane in the process. Yeah. Why not fly it so that it has enough fuel that you can completely recover it, refuel it, and run it again? Yes, it'll need maintenance. Right. But- It's refuelable and it's reusable. So you're not throwing anything away. You're much more practical. So he does, Elon does have a new Mars plan, Mm -hmm. but he says the timelines are aspirational. Yeah. He wants to fly two BFRs to Mars in 2022 that are just cargo. So 300 metric tons of equipment brought to Mars to use robotics to set up power, extracting water. Uh, building life support, you get the water resources set up. Hmm. And then two years later in 2024, fly four of them, two crew and two cargo as the first people on Mars that will build out the refueling infrastructure and will, uh, and start the space operations. And I'll, I'll include the video in the links in the show. They show a lovely city on Mars being constructed. And it's not far Very away. Very aspirational. Yeah. Uh, he also shows some videos of them landing on the moon. Which neat. is absolutely no reason why this couldn't be used to fly to the moon as well. Sure, and you know if we're if we're able to do more geek outs, even with this, as pressurized as I am right now, mm. we should do some more on the moon because the moon's become much more hip. In fact, coincidentally, when the, on the day this show comes out, the is the day that I am at NASA Ames doing a presentation to the staff about the moon base.
0: Well, this
1: is amazing. Tell us more about this, <laughs> Richard. Well. Uh, back in March of 2017, we did a show called the moon base geek out. We talked about why humans should go back to the moon, what we could do for us, how we would develop it, how we'd utilize the moon as a resource. And, uh, apparently it got passed around at NASA and we got a call from the NASA aim center saying, Hey, we really like this Mm. and we'd love if you would come and present it to us. Yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, I just read your papers and then read, read to back, and they're like, yeah, but we like the way you read those papers. Yeah, so,
0: and not a, uh, not a, you said before that not everybody at NASA has the the cross department overview that you seem to have. I think that's part of it is that I did bring a lot of elements
1: together. Yeah. We've been to NASA Goddard, you and I. Yeah. And, and, you know, those guys are very focused on space telescopes, right? Yeah. They've repaired the Hubble. They're building the James Webb. You know, it's a specialization. And right. I'm very much a generalist. Yep. And NASA Ames, these are the guys who flew the Lunar Prospector, the L-Cross mission, some new upcoming missions. They're roboticists. Yeah. And so mixing robots and human is a, Broader conversation around this problem. And yeah. It speaks a lot to what the moon's about. But I, I find it interesting that since March, when we did that show and today, the concept of using the moon as a staging ground to go to Mars to test equipment mm-hmm. and to possibly, you know, build up refueling and so forth has become much more talked about. Yes. Yeah. It's sort of in the, the headlines right now. That's so cool. It's, it's a powerful subject. And yeah, folks are very interested in that.
0: So cool, Richard.
1: This has been an amazing geek out. Thank you, buddy. I'm I'm excited. It's we'll see we'll see what comes of that. And yeah, certainly from the context of uh, how we unify all these things, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're we're getting long here, and yep. I want to bring up one last thing that's in that video from September of 2017. Okay, how Elon ended this 45 minute conversation about what he wants to do with the new BFR. He ended it with why do we have to fly into space why can't we just fly to different places on the earth with this rocket hmm Interesting. and so he shows he, he showed a great you know animation of people going out on a boat on a to a pad some distance from a city with a BFR on it yep. getting on board it takes off from New York City lands in
0: Shanghai 30 minutes later and the great thing about this video is it ends up saying basically anywhere in the world is only 30 to 40 minutes away from anywhere. That's right. Yeah. So,
1: uh, right. Yeah. First thing you'd be aware of, if you do the math for the 7,000 tons of fuel we're talking about, it's roughly a 10 kiloton bomb. (laughs) Yeah. So, about half the strength of Hiroshima. So, you don't want it too close to your cities. Right. Be careful where you fly. Uh, Because if it goes wrong, it's really going to be spectacular.
0: Uh, It's very noisy. And by the way, that 35 minutes is just pad to pad. You you know, if your pad is far away enough from your city, you have to take a boat there. You have to get to the city. Like, you know, it's still going to be a travel. Yeah, yeah. And you you know, think about
1: it's like flying from Vancouver to Seattle, right? I don't just don't do that anymore. I can drive it faster. The time it takes to get through the airport security, yep. get boarded, forty-five minutes of flying, get back out, like though all those times are gonna cost. By the way, the 30 minutes point to point, it's probably double that. Because yeah, okay. re entry goes slower than launch. Hmm. And launch is an important aspect of this. Typical acceleration rates for a rocket of this scale, mm-hmm. like if you compared to Saturn V, mm-hmm. it was 3Gs. Wow. I don't know that average humans, I don't know that I, could tolerate 3Gs for several minutes. Yeah. I think, you, you know, uh, the health aspects are not a small thing. Most people are crucifying it simply around, it's going to be too expensive. But if you think about it, if it can fly 100 people and the fuel cost is about 1.3 million, that's $13,000 a ticket. That's in the realms of a first-class ticket on an airliner, hmm. which is what Elon said. Yeah. Wow. Is it practical? Probably not.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're going to have a limited number of clientele. However, yes. those people are going to want to get from here to there as fast as they possibly can. But it's not going to be comfortable. Yeah. And it's it
1: going to be quick. And there's not going to be any bathroom breaks. But it's not. You're not going to be flying long enough. They're not going to uh, serve know, we've coffee. Yeah. They're not going to do any of those things. They're going to strap you in. They're going to fly you there and then you're going to have to get out. Yeah. But you get back to this is the conversation we had about hypersonics as well, right? Yeah. What's the amount of time faster that you'll put up with discomfort and cost Mm. versus if you got 13 grand to spend on a ticket, sit in a lounge essentially with your every whim catered to, right? And you know, have a, have a nap. Heck, if you spend $25,000, you
0: can get into one of those Emirates A380 suites with its own shower. Yeah, and that's the that's the funny part about it. It, it came to my attention with, uh, I think it was Freakonomics where um, Amtrak, I believe it was, or maybe it was somewhere in Europe, but it was a railway that, you know, they had a lot of pressure to decrease the time it takes to get from here to there. Let's just say Boston yep. to New York, right? And so they put in the Acela and I'm using, I can't remember exactly where it was, but let's say they put in the Amtrak Acela, which can in very short bursts through that corridor uh, go faster. They were really only able to shave off, you know, 15, 20% of the time. And the cost was enormous. And what if they could give everybody free Wi-Fi and a bottle of Dom Perignon served by a supermodel that it would have cost less And everybody would have forgotten that they were going to be 20 minutes longer. Exactly.
1: Yeah. You know, I've been on flights from Vancouver to to Singapore, 13, 14 hours on an airplane in first class. Yeah. And at the end of the flight, I was sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't want to get up. I was so happy there. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's kind of madness. And plus, there are no failure modes. Right. One of the big challenges they're going to have with this ship Is you're mixing fuel and passengers again in a way that they can't get away from each other. Yeah, which means if anything goes wrong, if an engine explodes, you have any of those problems, you're gonna kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. There are no good failure modes in this particular design. So, but it's a good thought
0: experiment, though, to to think about the potentials and the possibilities. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And back to you know Elon's mo, which is think big, pare it down to reality, and we get the best possible reality we can get. I, I tend to agree. I'm ex- I hope he builds
1: the BFR because in a lot of ways the there's a parallel between the BFR and the 747 mm-hmm. in the 1960s when they sat down and said it's time to build a really big airplane. Yeah, I mean the 747 was like an alien spaceship. It was so far ahead of its time, yeah. but it had the range, it had the comfort, it had the reusability. Yeah. that it changed flying forever. This is the first time I've looked at a rocket and said, okay, now you're bigger than any payload that's immediately needed right now. We'll come up with bigger payloads, but you have solved all of the reusability problems if it works the way you're describing. Yeah, Yeah, it'll be big, but at 100% reusability, you're talking a few million dollars a flight, right? The the price per kilogram is like 11 cents. Wow. For flight. You know, the Falcon 9's already blown it out of the water, getting below two thousand dollars a kilo. Yeah, but to get down to pennies per kilo, yeah, that's crazy. That's, that's airliner numbers, my friend. That yeah. is really,
0: really important. Well, I hope he does it. Good luck, Elon. <laughs> Despite what we've yeah. said about you in the past, <laughs> you well, are you I are I crazy. Like,
1: but I am it's enthusiastic. A good crazy. I like his I like his hutzpah. How's that? Yep, me too. But I also uh, and and. Maybe this is the one. It is He is targeting in on something. And the fact that he wants to make just this vehicle and replace everything else speaks to how
0: serious he is about it. Yep. And uh, that that might just do the thing we need to do. Well, thanks again, Richard. It's been another amazing geek out. Thank you, buddy. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Docs.